0: Welcome to Eternal Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Episode 2, 1876-77 vs. England, the birth of Test Cricket. At 1.05pm on the 15th of March 1877, Charles Bannerman faced up to Alfred Shaw on the Melbourne Cricket Ground. This was to become the first ever ball of Test Cricket, although no one knew this at the time. On the next delivery, Bannerman recorded the first runs. Bannerman's partner, Nat Thompson, became the first player to lose his wicket, bowled by Alan Hill. With these first Test Cricket was born. Cricket in Australia had arrived with the first settlers from Britain. Whilst the first recorded match occurred in 1803, newspaper reports from the Sydney Gazette suggested that the game had been played for far earlier than that. Cricket clubs began being established across the Australian colonies, based on the English model set up by clubs such as Hambledon and the Marleybone Cricket Club. As the game developed, intercolonial matches began to take place between the different states, the first of which occurred in 1851 when a Victorian side travelled to play a Tasmanian side. This match attracted 15,000 spectators and provided a template for future interstate competition. The developing cricket culture of the Australian colonies, as well as the wealth being created by the gold rush, began to attract the interests of English cricketers. Mainly organised as money-making exercises, groups of English players began making the trip to Australia to play games against local teams, with the first arriving in 1861. These were not the representative sides of modern times, which would be selected by a central authority, but players chosen by the person organising the tour, who would provide a share of the profits of the tour in order to encourage players to come along. These sides would head around the country playing local sides, often in uneven games where the local team would have anywhere from 15 to 22 players to go up against the English, who were often far more professional and experienced than the local players. Future tours would occur in 1863-64 and 1873-74, which was captained by W.G. Grace, the first great cricketer and one of the first international celebrities due to his cricket prowess. Despite WG, the 1873 side lost to both Victoria and New South Wales, demonstrating how far the game had developed in Australia and that the gap in skill was closing. The Collins also sent one side to England. In 1868, an all-Indigenous side which had previously toured around Australia arrived for a series of matches against local sides. The Indigenous team acquitted themselves well, winning 14 and drawing 19 of their 47 matches. Players such as Johnny Muller impressed with their skill. However, upon return to Australia, most of the players were shunned and new laws made it difficult for them to play cricket. The Indigenous side has gained more recognition in recent years, with a 150th anniversary side touring England in 2018, whilst a medal for the player of the match for the Boxing Day Test in Melbourne being named after Muller. Another tour by an English side was organised for 1876-77 by James Lillywhite, who had been a member of the previous tour in 1873-74. Arrival Tour was in the process of being organised by Fred Grace, brother of WG, but didn't eventuate. Lily side was made up of 12 members who were all considered professional, in that they were paid a fee for their participation on the tour. This was opposed to amateur players such as the Grace Brothers who generally considered of higher class and did not accept formal payment for their participation. In reality, however, amateur players such as WG Grace often made far more money due to the appearance fees and shares of the gate takings. Most of the games in Australia would be against sides of greater than 11 players. However, after losing to a New South Wales 15 early in the tour, the perceived lack of strength of the touring side, one local newspaper claimed it was by a long way the weakest side that have ever played in the colonies, led to a game against the New South Wales Eleven being organised, a two-day game which ended in a draw. Afterwards, Victoria also is- issued a challenge for an 11 a side game to be played in March, after side had returned from New Zealand, where they were scheduled to play eight games. The major incident of the New Zealand League of the tour occurred when Ted Pooley, the designated wicketkeeper, was detained by police due to assault and gambling charges. Whilst he would be acquitted of these offences, he would not be able to make the next Australian leg of the tour, meaning that the remaining 11 players would have to play all the games in Australia, including the 11-a-side game in Victoria, which was later determined to be against a side made up of representatives of the different colonies. Back in Australia, the tour manager John Conway helped organise the first combined match between All-Australian and All-England sides. Despite the All-Australian name, only players from New South Wales and Victoria would be chosen for the game. Conway worked outside of the local cricket associations to select his sides to avoid them taking a share of the profits. New South Wales pace bowler Fred Spothoth originally agreed to play, but withdrew before the match. Spothoth had been disappointed that Jack Blackham, the Victorian keeper, had been chosen ahead of Spothoth's New South Wales teammate Billy Murdoch. When Spothoth withdrew, Frank Allen, the Victorian left-arm bowler, was offered his spot. Allen, however, chose to attend a local fair in Warrnambool instead of playing in the match. The final 11 for the combined Australian side was made up of six Victorian players and five New South Welshmen. Five of these players had been born in the colonies. Nat Thompson and Ned Gregory were the oldest players in the side at 37 years of age, whilst Tom Garrett, the fast-medium bowler, was only 19. Ned's brother Dave was chosen by the other players as the first captain ahead of Bransby Cooper. Meanwhile, the English side had only their 11 players left in their touring squad to pick from team was considered to be a stronger bowling side. Professionals were generally considered the better bowlers, whilst amateurs were stronger in batting. The 11 did include Alfred Shaw, who WG Grace considered to be the best bowler in England, and George Ulyett, the youngest player in the side at 25, who would go on to be one of the finest players in the first decade of Test cricket. Their backup keeper, Harry Jupp, had an eye inflammation and was not trusted to keep wicket in the match, with John Selby taking the gloves. James Southerton was 49 and remains the oldest ever Test debutant. As a whole, the team was considered to be tired due to their extensive touring and the entire party having to play every game due to Pooley's arrest. The match was originally scheduled for the East Melbourne Cricket Ground, as the MCG had been booked by the English amateurs. However, with the cancellation of the Grace Tour, the MCG became available and the game was moved there with its ability to support a larger crowd and thus earn more money the reason behind the change. The Australian captain won the toss and chose to bat. At the beginning of play, 1,500 people were in attendance to watch Shaw deliver the first ball to Bannerman. After the departure of Thompson, Bannerman was joined by the Victorian Tom Horan. Bannerman had yet to reach a double figures when he was dropped by Tom Armitage at mid-off, a chance that was conceded to be a simple one. This drop would end up having massive ramifications for both the match and the future of Test cricket. Charles Bannerman was born in Kent, England, on the 3rd of July, 1851. His family emigrated to New South Wales where brother and fellow Test cricketer Alec was born in 1854. As a young man, Charles joined the Warwick Cricket Club, where he was coached by former Surrey player William Caffin. Caffin would later say that Charles was the best bat I ever saw in Australia. Bannerman would go on to make his debut for New South Wales in 1871. Over the next six years, he would go on to establish himself as one of the side's premier batsmen, although he hadn't scored a century in a first-class fixture to this stage. In the 11th side game against Lily White's 11 earlier in the 2-up, he had scored two in the first innings, followed by 32 in the second. During this knock, he partnered with Dave Gregory, his future test captain, together doing enough to help draw the game. After the drop by Armitage, Bannerman dominated the partnership with Horan, with Horan being dismissed for 12, leaving the Australians at 2 for 40. This soon became 3 for 41 as the captain, Dave Gregory, was run out for 1. Bannerman was then joined by Bransby Cooper, a Victorian who had played for both Kent and Middlesex before emigrating in 1869. Again, Bannerman would dominate the partnership, which ended up being the largest of the match. Cooper scored 15 out of a partnership of 77 with Bannerman, before being dismissed by Southerton. Billy Midwinter had replaced Cooper at the wicket, and was present to see Bannerman bring up his century with a single off Southerton, bringing a large round of applause from the growing crowd. Midwinter tried to launch a ball into the grandstand, was caught in the boundary by Ulyut. Ned Gregory then had the unfortunate luck of recording the first duck in test cricket, being out to Lily White. Jack Blackham, the wicketkeeper, then joined with Bannerman, seeing Australia through to the scheduled finish at 166 for 6. Bannerman ended the day on 126 not out, playing what the Melbourne newspaper the Argus described as the finest play ever seen in Australia, and that WG Grace himself could not have batted better. He had provided only one other chance, with Shaw not being able to reach a ball hit in the air towards him. Up to 5,000 people were in the crowd by the end of the day's play. Bannerman and Blackham resumed the next day. They started cautiously, and runs were difficult to come by in the opening overs. Lily White had cut off most of the scoring opportunities available to the batsmen, with the majority of the runs coming through the cut shot. As the runs eventually began to flow again, Blackham was bowled by Southerton trying to hit to leg for 17, having enjoyed a 54-run stand with Bannerman. The youngster Garrett then joined Bannerman, making their way to lunch for the score on 232. At this stage, Bannerman was on 159 and looking impossible for the English to dismiss. Upon the return from the lunch break, Bannerman managed to hit Ulyett for a boundary. However, with the first ball of the fourth over following the break, Ulyett struck Bannerman on the middle finger of his right hand, splitting it to the bone. The damage was so great that Bannerman had to retire hurt, and there were fears that he would not be able to bat again in the match if required. He had scored 165 from the total of 240 whilst he was at the crease. The end of the Australian innings came quickly. Thomas Kendall and John Hodges were both dismissed by Shaw to finish off the first innings, with the Australians achieving the total of 245. Garrett was left not out on 18, the second highest score for the Australians. Bannerman's 165 had been worth 67.35% of the team's total, a record that remains as the highest proportion of a single innings in a Test match. The wickets were shared, with both Shaw and Southerton claiming three. Shaw having bowled an incredible 55 overs, it should be noted that at the time, overs were only four balls in Australia, which would only change to six balls and over in the 1890s. The length of overs would vary at different times and in different countries, with five, six, and eight ball overs being used until the 1980s, where six ball overs would become the settled norm worldwide. The English opened with Jupp and Selby. Hodges had the honour of delivering the first ball, bowled by an Australian in Test cricket. The first oversaw the first drama of the innings, with Jupp taking a quick single to Thompson, who missed his throw to the bowler, leading to an overthrow. On the last ball of the over, Jupp turned the ball to long leg for two runs. However, unbeknownst to the umpires, he had trod on his leg stump. When the Australians noticed broken stumps and appealed, the umpires admitted they had not seen how it had occurred, leading to a not-out decision being given. Jupp later admitted that he stood on his stumps. It is unknown if Jupp is of any relation to Stuart Broad. Runs flowed quickly in ones and twos before Hodges managed to cause Selby to hit the ball to point where the catch was taken by Cooper in the 7th over with a score on 23. Harry Charwood joined Jupp and the pair batted comfortably against the Australian bowlers. Dave Gregor was more concerned with preventing boundaries, allowing the two to steal singles to the field to set further back. When Charwood was finally caught by Blackham off the bowling of midwinter for 36 in the 36th over, the score had progressed to 79. Ooyit joined Jupp and was dropped by Thompson off Kendall while what was considered a simple chance. Thompson made up for this by having him trapped LBW soon after for 10, although Ooyit protested very loudly to anyone that would listen. There was no way they could have been out. Greenwood then joined Jupp, who soon asked the umpire whether stumps could be taken, given the lateness of the day. This was denied, and soon Greenwood was out, caught by Ned Gregory off the bowling of midwinter for one. Stumps were taken soon after. England were on 109 for four, with Jupp not out on 54, his eye inflammation obviously not affecting him too badly. Upon resumption on the Saturday, England would have been hoping to press on to at least match the Australian total. However, England lost steady wickets throughout the remainder of the innings, unable to put on strong partnerships to challenge the Australian's first innings score. Midwinter continued on with his previous day's efforts by claiming two quick wickets before Jupp was finally out for 63 LBW to Garrett. He'd faced 243 balls and remained the highest score in the innings. Midwinter then bowled Tom Emmett, to claim the first five-wicket haul in Test cricket. At this stage, England were 8 for 145, exactly 100 runs behind the Australians total. However, the last two wickets managed to put on 51 runs, with England finally being bowled out for 196. Alan Hill had scored the bulk of these runs, finishing on 35 not out. By this stage, there was great anticipation in the air. The crowd had swelled to 12,000, excited to see if Bannerman, who was considered fit enough to bat after his injury had ended his first innings knock, could repeat his heroics. Again, he was dropped by the English, this time without scoring. However, he could not capitalise, being the first out for four, having been bowled by Ulliet. Horan joined Thompson and took the score on to 27 before four quick wickets left the Australians at 5 for 31. Ned Gregory and Billy Midwinter steadied for a short time, but after Gregory was out at 58, another burst of wickets from Shaw and Ulliet saw Australia 9 down for 75, with only Kendall and Hodges left at the crease. At this stage, the Australians were only 124 in front, However, Kendall and Hodges managed to see through to Stumps with the score at 9 for 83. The next day, a Sunday, was a rest day. When the teams returned on the Monday, most pundits considered that the English were morals to win the game due to their greater experience and professionalism. However, Kendall and Hodges managed to put on a further 21 runs before Hodges was bowled by the English captain. Kendall was left 17 not out. Shaw had taken five wickets whilst Elliot had three. The target was set at 154, which most people at the ground expected the English to be able to chase down. England opened with Hill and Greenwood. Kendall opened the bowling, and on his second ball, bowled had Hill caught by Thompson for a duck. In his next over, Greenwood also fell to Kendall. Then a few overs later, Midwinter had the top scorer from the first innings jump, LBW. Charwood, who had made his way to 13, was then bowled by Kendall. The score was then 4 for 22, and the chances of a great upset victory had increased, with the crowd of 2,000 getting behind the local side. George Uliot then joined John Selby for what would be the most substantial partnership of the innings. As their partnership began to grow, the Australians became a lot sloppier in the field. The English managed to steal a few singles from blocking the ball back down the pitch, and fumbles from Horan and Dave Gregory led to extra runs. The captain then brought himself onto bowl, with his style being described as suspiciously like a throw, leading to a few buys. By the time lunch arrived, England had reached 50, and with Selby and Uliot looking comfortable, the likelihood of an English victory had increased. Upon the resumption of play, the score progressed to 62, before Kendall returned to bowl Uliot for 24 with a score on 62. Alfred Shaw nearly played on to Kendall, the next ball left his crease to be stumped by Blackham. Armitage joined Selby, who decided that more adventurous play was required to reach the winning total. They took Kendall for runs, so Hodges was brought on at the other end. Selby responded by skying one straight to Horan at Long On, who took a simple catch. Kendall then had Armitage caught by Blackham. The score was now 8 for 93, and the final two wickets of Emmett and Lillywhite fell quickly to have the English all out for 108, meaning the combined side had won by 45 runs. Kendall had taken the excellent figures of 7 for 55, bowling unchanged throughout the innings. He would receive a silver cup paid for by a local newspaper in reward of being the best bowler for the home side. Kendall and Blackham also shared a prize of £15 raised amongst the crowd. Badham had already received a sum of £83 collected by the crowd earlier in the game, an amount which would be around $10,000 Australian today. The Victorian Cricklers Association also presented each of the Australian players with a gold watch for their achievement. Up to 5,000 people had arrived at the ground by the end of the match. Alan and Spotheth, who had declined to participate in the match, both received three groans from the crowd for having missed the game. The players received a rousing reception, with many requests to come forth and be received by the crowd. The newspapers were buoyant regarding the results, saying that demonstrate the Englishmen born in Australia do not fall short of Englishmen born in Surrey or Yorkshire. The result itself also helped play a part in creating the nascent Australian identity. The result of the colonies coming together to beat an English side enabled people to look past their colonial identities towards a more united idea. Due to the success of the first game, although the English complained that they did not receive adequate compensation given the amount of people that attended across the first match, a second match was organised to commence on Saturday the 31st of March at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. The Australian side made three changes, with Threads Bofforth and Billy Murdoch, both future greats of Australian cricket, as well as Thomas Kelly joined the side in place of Ned Gregory, Bransby Cooper and Tom Horan. The English 11 remained the same. Dave Gregory again won the toss and chose to bat, with Bannerman and Thompson opening for the home side. Four and a half thousand spectators were present to watch the first day of play. Bannerman and Thompson began cautiously against the bowling of Shaw and Lillywhite. When almost an hour had passed, Hill was brought on with immediate success, first claiming Thompson LBW, followed by bowling the hero of the first test, Bannerman. Garrett joined Blackham with the score at 30, moving the score on to 50 before he was also bowled by Hill. Soon after, Blackham was caught off the bowling of Hill, leaving the Australians at 4 for 60. Midwinter joined Thomas Kelly and the two began to progress the score. Midwinter, especially, showed great power in reaching the boundaries whilst also stealing close singles. With Hill and Shaw unable to provide a breakthrough, Lillywhite switched himself and Uliet on with almost immediate effect. Uliet clean bowled Kelly for 19 at, with the score now 5 for 96. Wickets then began to fall regularly, with the Australians unable to establish another substantial partnership. Midwinter was out for 31, the highest score of the innings, caught by Emmet off Lillywhite, although Midwinter was of the belief that the catch hadn't been taken cleanly. The end then came quickly for the Australians, with two runouts contributing to the innings finishing on 122. Hill was the most successful of the bowlers with his four early wickets. Kendall continued his good form from the previous game by bowling Jupp for a duck in the first over of the English innings. Sophos began the next over and immediately demonstrated why he would become one of the first great bowlers in Test cricket. It was considered a much faster bowl than all the others involved in the game and batsmen found him uncomfortable to play for this reason. The keeper Bannerman managed to demonstrate his class by stumping Shaw off Spother's pace, showing why he had been chosen ahead of Murdoch in the first match and earning Spother's respect. Charwood and Greenwood took England to the end of the day's play at a perilous two for seven. When the players returned on the Monday after the rest day, Charwood and Greenwood established a partnership, moving the score on to 55 before Charwood was dismissed by Kendall for 14. Kendall then had Selby bowled for seven, and when Green was dismissed by Hodges one short of his 50 with a score at 5 for 88, the Australian side had a real chance to earn a slender first innings lead. However, whilst Kendall was able to keep a lid on the scoring and bowl most of the overs from one end, the other bowlers were unable to limit the runs by the English batsmen. Uliot would go on to score 52 in a partnership of 74 with Emmett before being bowled by Spofforth. Emmett would go on to make 48, whilst along with 49 from Hill and 21 from Armitage, The English would finish the day being bowled out for 261, a lead of 139. Kendall had taken four wickets and spot of three, but the Australian bowls had been far more expensive than their English counterparts, with all the bowlers going for over two and over whereas all the English bowlers had gone for under. Being behind more on the first innings they had made, there was a possibility of an innings defeat ahead for the Australians. Dave Gregory opened with Thompson, and the two put on 88 before Gregory was caught off Lily White for 43. Bannerman then came to the wicket and was able to take advantage of some flagging bowling, scoring four boundaries and a five. Hits over the rope were scored as five, a batsman need to hit the ball out of the ground to record a six. Before Ollie, who had broken Bannerman's finger in the previous game, was able to have him caught by the wicketkeeper Jupp for 30. With solid contributions from Thompson, who scored 41, and Thomas Kelly, who scored 35, the Australians were able to end the day at seven for 203, with a lead of 64. On the final day of the match, the Australians came to the wicket looking for extra runs to try and set a challenging total. Between contributions from Kendall, Garrett and Blackham, the Australians managed to progress their score to 259 all-out. Both Lily White and Southerton claimed four wickets, leaving the English with a target of 121. This was greater than what they had been bowled out for in the final innings of the previous match, so the Australians still had some hope of success. Blackham was unable to take the field having suffered from heat stroke, with Murdoch taking his place behind the stumps. Early on, there was good fortune for the Australians, with Kendall bowling jump for the second time in the match, this time for one. Selby was then dismissed by Spofforth, whilst Kendall bowled Charwood, leaving the English in a precarious place at three for nine. This brought Ooyit to the crease to join Greenwood. Ooyit would go on to play the decisive innings of the match. The Australian bowlers, particularly Spofforth, were unable to control the rate of scoring, with Spofforth being described by one onlooker as a white elephant. Greenwood was out with the score on 54, but Ooyit would continue to drive and cut strongly. Midwinter managed to bowl Emmeth 8, which brought Hill to the crease with a score on 5 for 76. Ullit and Hill then continued to pro- progress the score, with Ullit being dismissed for 63 on the brink of victory. Hill would bring up the remaining runs with a boundary off Midwinter, the English winning with 4 wickets remaining. Despite the loss, the Australians had once again acquitted themselves well against the English opposition. One letter in the Melbourne paper, The Argus, put the loss squarely at the feet of the captain Gregory and his infatuation with Spotheth. Others claimed the game had been rigged, although those accusations came from those who had lost money gambling on the match. The two matches would later go on to be recognised as the first test matches, as the competition between England and Australia would become more fierce. Indeed, it was the quality of play demonstrated by the Australians that would see the viability of tours by Australian players to England become realised, and eventually lead to the establishment of the oldest trophy in world cricket, the Ashes. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail